If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open up your Bible to Psalm 29 in the first book of the five books of the Psalms, Psalm 29. If you don't have a Bible with you, then those handouts that you got on your way in does right in the middle have Psalm 29 on it for you to follow along. I'm going to read the psalm in a second, but before we do, I'm going to give you, I think it is one of the most helpful approaches to thinking about praise and specifically the psalms from the former author, Christian apologist, C.S. Lewis. He wrote a book called Reflection on the Psalms, and he confessed in that book that when he would read through them as a young boy, he was more than a little agitated by this persistent demand that all of us praise God. What he said made it even worse is that God himself called for praise of God. Not just David says, hey, we should praise God, but God speaks through the Psalms and says, praise me. And he said that this was more than he could stomach. You know, what kind of God would incessantly demand that people tell him, you're just so great? Lewis said he pictured that God must have been just a vain woman always demanding people to compliment her beauty. Giving thanks to God would be one thing, But perpetual praise? That's another. I wonder for any of you, is that idea problematic? Even as I share it, well, no, I wasn't thinking about it, but now that you say it, Pastor Phil, yeah. I suspect for many of us it's because we think the God of the universe is supremely concerned with us instead of himself. We too often And our natural bent towards sin want a man-centered God rather than a God-centered God. How could God possibly love us? So we might think. How could he have the energy and capacity to love us if he is unapologetically obsessed with praise and glory for himself? One of the main points of C.S. Lewis's book is to help readers resolve this tension. He goes on to say that he did not understand when he was a young boy, and I quote, It is in the process of worship that God communicates his love to us. In the very process of being worshipped, God communicates his love and his presence to us. Let me further go on to read a little bit of a lengthier quote, but I think if you grasp this, this would be one of those sections of a Lewis quote that turns a light switch on in your brain and maybe even a fire in your heart. Lewis writes, the most obvious fact about praise, in my early days, it escaped me. And I mean praise whether we're talking about praise for God or really anything. I had never noticed that all of our enjoyment spontaneously overflowed into praise. The world that we live in, it rings with praise. Two lovers praise each other. Readers praise their favorite poet. Sports, athletes, and players praise the game. We praise good weather, a good meal, Actors and actresses, horses and machines, colleges and universities, countries, armies, our children, our family, flowers and mountains, even rare stamps and old coins, rare beetles. We might even sometimes praise a politician or a scholar. But I never noticed 
that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value or esteem, so they also spontaneously urge others to join them in praising the thing. So people say, oh wow, isn't she lovely? Wasn't that glorious? Don't you think this is magnificent? In other words, Lewis writes, when the book of Psalms is telling everybody to praise God, even when it's God himself, it's doing the thing that any of us would do if we were to speak about something that we truly cared about. So if you have the difficulty of swallowing the idea that God asks for praise, then you must realize that this difficulty would keep you from the one who supremely deserves that praise and the very thing that would bring you the most delight. The reason we find such delight in giving praise to those things we enjoy is because the act of praise does not just express joy, it completes our enjoyment. It is the appointed consummation. It's the very reason that lovers keep on telling each other how beautiful they are, because joy is incomplete until it is expressed. Joy in our lives as Christians will be incomplete until that joy is expressed, especially if that joy is expressed in the thing that is most worthy of praise, God himself. So I have two big ideas for you. I'm going to say those up front now, and then I want us to read through Psalm 29. First, everyone in both heaven and on earth was created to give God praise. Second big idea, we should praise him because his voice thunders from his throne and brings blessing to his people. See if that's not a helpful summary for verses 1 and 2. God demands and asks praise from everyone in heaven and on earth. And then verses 3 to 11, we should praise him because his voice is like a mighty thunderstorm thundering from his throne and bringing blessing to his people. Would you follow along with me? Psalm 29, a psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bear, and in his temple all cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. 
And thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and errant word. And may he write its eternal truth on our hearts. Amen. The structure of the psalm should be pretty obvious. If, again, you have your handout, I have given a little space between verses 1 and 2, verses 3 and 9, and 10 and 11. The basic structure of this psalm has an introduction and a conclusion. And then did you notice the sevenfold repetition of the voice of the Lord in the middle section. And this is why I said you can summarize this whole psalm with two basic ideas. In verses 1 and 2, the introduction is telling you that everyone in heaven and on earth should give praise to God. This is what we were created for. And verses 3 to 11 gives us the reason for this praise. Because his voice thunders from his throne and it brings blessing to his people. Notice the way in verse 1 and verse 11 you have nice bookends. Verse 1 uses this phrase, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. And as we saw last week, the theme of strength continues from Psalm 28 here into Psalm 29. May the Lord give strength to his people, verse 11 says. And that's a great clue that you've got these little markers in the psalm for a beginning, introduction, and then verses 10 and 11 as our conclusion. So the main meat and center of the psalm is verses 3 to 9. So what I want to do is I just want to walk through verses 1 and 2 and point 1. Everyone in heaven on earth was created to give God praise. And then walk through verses 3 to 11, this idea that we should praise him because of this thundering, powerful voice coming from his throne, bringing peace and blessing to his people. So first, verses 1 and 2. One of the interesting elements of Hebrew poetry is what's called a stair-step parallelism, like there's a ladder that you're climbing, and I think that's the case here in this introduction. You have a repetition of ascribe, 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 and then worship. Ascribe is just a basic word, give, you know, if you want just a simple word. Give God praise. Give God praise. Give God praise. Worship him. See the step Step, step, parallel to eventually the main point. You should worship the Lord God. But here the thing that you may miss, and the ESV translation, I think, helpfully translates this phrase, sons of El or sons of Elohim, sometimes translated sons of God, right there in verse 1. Ascribe to the Lord, and then notice the ESV's translation, it's rendering, O heavenly beings. This is new, sort of. We saw it a little bit in Psalm 2. But just pause, ponder this for a second. David begins this psalm by saying, I would like those spiritual heavenly beings, angels, principalities, authorities, invisible realities in the heavens. He's not even talking about humans. He's not talking about people in the temple. He's beginning by saying, those beings in the heavens, your job is to give God praise. I mean, that's bold. Especially for many of us, modern, secular people, we might not even think that the heavens are that involved with the world in the first place. But David lived in a different world and time. The heavens and the earth were seen as always overlapping and and interacting with each other in various elements of the way the world just worked. And so, he says, to the heavenly beings, your job, your existence, your purpose is to ascribe to the Lord Give him the glory and the praise that he deserves. It's an argument from greater to lesser. You think about it that way? If I said, 
Well, the President of the United States praises the Lord, so should the citizens of the United States. If the mayor of Chicago is praising the Lord, then you should praise the Lord. If famous football player who's going to be thrown around a football that we all bow down and worship, he praises the Lord, well, then you should praise the Lord. It's kind of like that for you modern folks. He's thinking of who's the most highly esteemed creatures that exist. He's starting from that and saying, if their existence is to praise the Lord, well, then how much more you, who was made lower than the angels, human beings? And so that's the idea. David is commanding heavenly, invisible, spiritual beings to worship the strength and splendor of God. Therefore, you should do. Your whole existence should be wrapped up in praise. You exist to present yourself as an offering of praise. So that's the point, but there's a further detail of this text that I think might be helpful. The phrase sons of El, sons of God, heavenly beings, that's here in verse 1, could be a reference to a story in the Old Testament, and that story is strange. It's from Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And the reason we have a guess that he might be thinking about that story is because Genesis 6 is the story about what led up to the flood story and then the flood itself. In fact, did you notice that our passage in verse 10 says what about God's throne? His throne sits enthroned over the flood. So if you're doing a quick study of the Bible... I recommend this. Look up where words in the Bible are being used. And so I did that this week and I noticed that the flood, this phrase for the flood, it appears a whole bunch of times in Genesis 6, 7, and 8 because it's a flood story. And then it appears nowhere else in the entire Old Testament except here. So I wonder if that might be a clue, a good clue, That as we're praising God, we're supposed to think about the power of his voice that rules over the waters of the flood. Seem like a good argument? Makes sense? So then in light of that, the fact that David begins with sons of God would then make sense for why this strange story of the sons of God in Genesis 6-1, intermarrying with the daughters of men, And then there were these creatures that were created. But the point is, regardless of how we interpret that story, because honestly, on the surface, if you take sons of God as heavenly beings, it's like these angel demon figures intermarried and had children. See why I said it was a strange story? I told this to my children one day and they were like, really? This is in the Bible? Well, it depends again how you interpret it. But the point is this. There's very clear references to the flood in our story. That God is the God who rules over the waters. And most of you are thinking, cool. But that doesn't do a whole lot for my meditation of God's power. But if you were in David's day, you would think, this David guy, he's edgy. He's he's punchy. He's provocative. What do you mean, Pastor Phil? The gods that the peoples worshipped in David's day were Canaanite gods, Baal, Baal, you sometimes pronounce it that way. These gods were gods of the waters. 
they believed that the waters were chaotic and that God in Baal worship beat the water god and then became the land god and created people. That's the background to the Bible's historical context is that in the middle of that world, the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless, it was void, it was empty. Hebrew phrase tohu vavohu, it rhymes. It's to say it was a wild wasteland with just waters everywhere. It uses one of these key Canaanite words in the second verse of Genesis chapter 1 to tell you about the chaotic waters and that the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the dark, deep waters. That's the first verses of your Bible. Some of you maybe didn't even put these connections together. Creation emerged by the voice of God over the waters. That's all of chapter 1. And God said, and there was light. And God said, and there was dry ground that came up from the waters. And God said, and there were two humans walking on the face of the earth. The voice of God over the ruling waters is the first thing you should be thinking about God in the Bible. I believe Psalm 29 is telling us not just about God's power in his voice over creation, but the flood. Remember the references to the flood? Genesis 6, 1 to 4, sons of God, and then he is enthroned over the floodwaters. What is the flood? The flood story is an act of judgment, a story about God holding the waters of the heavens at bay. Read Genesis 6, 7, and 8. The background of the flood story is that God is holding the waters from the heavens from pouring forth onto the earth. And because of the power, as Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 says, by the power of his word, he keeps all things together. His voice created, his voice sustains creation. And if at any moment he wants to, he can let leash the chaotic waters of the flood onto the earth and return it to its Genesis 1, 2 state. Creation can become decreation with a word. We're only into chapter 6 of Genesis, and you're seeing that the Bible presents Elohim Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, the God of the Hebrew scriptures, as the one whose voice rules over all, and you don't hear about Tiamat, the water goddess. Well, that's interesting. Why not? Because he reigns supreme from his throne and his creation listens when he speaks and does his bidding. That's the difference between a Christian Bible and all of the other world religion stories. There's lots of gods. They're fighting each other. One wins. Therefore, you have a god named Baal. And Psalm 29 is one of those psalms that if you read it in this historical context and you knew a little bit about Genesis 1 to 6, as I'm trying to give you some little stories here, you would say, whoa, David's provocative, he's punchy, he's saying there is one supreme God, and all other sons of God should worship him. That's verses one and two. And if that's true about the invisible, powerful, heavenly beings, how much more true is it for us? Dust of the earth, finite human beings. Everyone in heaven and on earth was created to give praise to God. And that should be good news to you and to me because, as C.S. Lewis helped us with, 
This is not only what you were created for, but it is the ultimate climactic expression of your joy. God should be supremely worshiped, and guess what, friends? This is not at odds with his love for you or the best thing for you. Secondly, the reason you should praise him that our psalm gives is because of his powerful thundering voice that comes from his throne to bring blessing and peace to his people. I have a challenge for you all. I was thinking about doing this, but time ran out on me. So I challenge you all to do this. As I was reading through verses 3 to 9 this week, I was thinking this is poetically beautiful, masterful, it's, it's artistic. It's when you so prize something and behold it that you're like, it's not good enough to just say it in a bullet point like I just did. God should be praised because his voice thunders from his throne. Amen, it's true. But how much better is it when it sounds like this? The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And in his temple all cry glory. Isn't that beautiful? Poetically, the voice of the Lord, it appears seven times, which is probably another hint that you should be thinking about Genesis chapter 1. Remember? The voice of the Lord that created all things over the chaotic waters. That voice is a thunderous power. I think one of the excellent attributes of, of the Psalms as we study them and go through them and use them in our life is that they don't just make statements they give us experiences of the truth of those statements. So here's the challenge I was referring to. I was reading through these poetic statements, and I was thinking, some of you are going like, to get it because it repeats itself so often. But this isn't just about getting it. It's about you adoring it. So I would like one of you, ten of you, all of you, take verses 3 to 9 and try and figure out how you could modernize and rewrite this into a poem for your own heart and worship. I could be a really good exercise. Like I said, I was going to do it, but I ran out of time. So, verses 3 to 9 say some things that I think if you catch the reference in the historical context, you're like, whoa, that, that's beautiful. Say, for example, how many of you have hung around a young wild ox from Syrian? That's kind of my point. You need to modernize it. A wild ox from Syrian is like a giant, massive buffalo. It's an extinct animal. doesn't exist anymore. Google pictures of it. You'll see what I'm talking about. This thing is a massive thing. So he goes from, he makes Lebanon to skip like a calf. So an infant kind of animal. Smaller. To a young, wild ox that's filled with vigor and strength and is a beast that you would be terrified. And he's saying that the voice of the Lord makes them skip. And so if we, if we imagine, again, that God's voice is controlling the waters, and you have the flood in the background of your thinking in this psalm, it's like when the waters come, 
and the forests of these massive trees and these big cities and these nations that think they're so great and powerful, the waters of God just come and snap them, make them jump like animals going, woo! It's creating word pictures in your mind of these creatures that are awesome and mighty and they're nothing compared to the raging waters that God has ultimate authority over by his powerful voice and its majesty. It's just like an ant. And this is what I mean. If you could take some of these phrases and, and, and study what does it mean that he shakes the wilderness of Kadesh and the Lord flashes forth flames of fire and the wilderness and There's several references to these poems in a way that by studying its historical kind of context, you'll better understand what he's trying to say. Like take, for example, verse 9. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. I think that's probably a reference to the fertility gods of the Canaanites. It's the voice of the Lord that brings forth life and death. He's the one enthroned over all things Maybe a, like a modern example of this would be, well, there was a massive storm and there was warm weather colliding with cold weather and it created thunder and it created lightning and that's the way we describe it. And we give our bowing down to the gods of science and whatever else in the academies of the world and instead we should say something like, the voice of the Lord, it pales comparisons between the the intellect and the might of those who think they've got storms figured out or the way we'll in common everyday language say mother nature is roaring its ugly head and this would be examples of the way we talk in the world today about storms and thunder remember they're thinking that when there's a big storm the gods are angry and that there's this one god and it's attacking our people so you got to try and translate verses three to nine in that context and realize that god of the Bible is being declared as the voice that thunders from his throne, not to scare his people, but notice very importantly, verses 10 and 11, to bring blessing and peace to his people. The Lord is sitting enthroned over the flood, enthroned as the king forever, giving strength to his people, so may the Lord bless his people with peace. So I I think that we learn from this psalm, Psalm 29, that you should worship God because he is powerful like a thunderstorm. You should praise him because through the act of praise you'll be strengthened and blessed. He blesses his people with peace. Sometimes peace can become that word that you hear too often that you lose its meaning. In Hebrew, shalom means wholeness. Being being every part in its rightful place. So think of a brick wall. And if the bricks started to crumble and fall, the wall is incomplete. It's not whole. It's not shalom. Shalom is the concept that those bricks fell down and then somebody came and repaired it and then now it's at peace. You can think about this in the terms of war between human beings. Two people have a relationship and then something like sin or anger or, or some sort of conflict, what was now together, the relationship, is now broken and fractured. And so what we learn is that God's voice holds the entire universe together from the floodwaters crashing down on us. 
But furthermore, he repairs. God's peace is restorative, it's reparative, it blesses, and when things have been fractured or falling apart, his voice can strengthen and bring back together. So I wonder if any of you are here today and personally, or even as you think in the world around us, you could use some shalom right now. You know, like you feel like things are falling apart. You feel like society around you or your own personal life, your own heart, internally in the home. We need the peace of God. And I ask, how are you going to find it? And does our psalm give any indication that that is accessible to us? Well, we've seen that through praise and through worship of God, it will give us joy. But at the end of our psalm, we have a prayer for peace. And I want to suggest to you that when the Lord Jesus Christ was sent into the world, when God became flesh, the author of the, the Gospel of John said that the Word of God became a man of God. That Jesus was born and that the heavenly beings in Luke chapter 2 verse 14 gave praise to a man in a manger. Read Luke chapter 1 and 2 again and remember that verse, glory to God in the highest. And do you guys know what it says? Peace on earth among those with whom he is well pleased. The moment that Jesus enters the world, Psalm 29 verse 1 comes to fruition. The heavenly beings ascribe glory and strength and honor to the King of kings and Lord of lords who humbled himself by becoming a man and taking on the form of a servant. Does it now make sense why Gina read for us Mark chapter 4? When Jesus walked this earth, he was in control through his voice over the chaos, the darkness, the evil powers. He casted out demons and he walked on water, the very thing that only the Old Testament said could be done of Yahweh. Are you saying Jesus is equal with Yahweh? Yeah, that's kind of the whole point of the New Testament. Jesus is Yahweh, the God and the voice in human flesh. So Jesus Christ walks on the waters because he rules over the waters. Jesus Christ is in a boat, in a storm, where there's thunder, there's lightning, there's chaos. Call it the lack or absence of shalom. There is not peace in that boat. There is not peace in this world. And it is with a word that the calm resides over the waters. Oh, but it's better than that. It's not just any word. It's the word peace. God wanted you to know that his voice had authoritative power, that his voice, when spoken through the Lord Jesus Christ, would be able to take the chaotic waters of the evil gods that people believed in, and with one word, peace, he'd bring it back together. He'd restore and repair. And if Psalm 29 is one of those greater to lesser, then we look at the storm story in Mark chapter 4. And Jesus is walking on water as one of those greater to lessers. If he could do that in the middle of a storm, now put your problems into the story. Now imagine that the chaos 
metaphorically speaking, the waters raging is whatever you could fill in the blank. And remember that the voice of Jesus reigns. It rules over all. Or, if this isn't helpful meditation that Psalm 29 should and be read Jesus-centered, think about the whole flow and structure of our psalm. It begins where? Where does verse 1 begin? Not on earth, in the heavens. O heavenly beings, you should ascribe glory and honor to the Lord. Then, verses 3 to 9 take us in a walk through a forest and a wilderness, and it's observing the crazy grandeur of creation, and it is in awe, and it is saying that it is the voice of the Lord that is ruling over all of this. And then where does verse 10 take us? Back up into heaven, on the throne, where the Lord is enthroned, and he is seated over the floodwaters. I think that's the story of Jesus too. I've tried to preach that many times to you all at Embassy Church. Jesus is the embodiment of the God who became man and descended down to the very grave of the earth. Through his death on the cross, when a storm, a a dark cloud, all of the sun was blackened, earthquakes shook. That's what happens when God speaks through his cross, dies for sinners, and tells you, I am bringing shalom. I'm repairing what was broken and starting a whole new creation. So he arises from the grave, he ascends to heaven, and he is seated at the throne that rules over the waters, and he sends forth his spirit so that there would be a new creation. That's the story of the Bible. It is a story that begins in the heavens, comes to the earth, and then brings us back up into the heavens. And it is all centered around Jesus Christ. Do you see how Psalm 29 should point to each one of us, not just that we should praise God, not just why we should praise God, but how? In the power of the Spirit of God, in dependence upon him, through the gift of the gospel that is a free gift based on the the merits and the blood of Jesus Christ, not because of your great performance to praise and worship him with your whole life. Friends, if our whole life was proclaiming and praising God, if you were to look back on it, isn't it kind of fairly obvious it's a pretty pathetic offering of praise? But what if that could be shalom? What if it could be repaired, redeemed, restored, and become a beautiful, sweeping aroma up into heaven? Well, it can. The how is by the power of God's spirit through Jesus's cross. And that's why this service began with us saying, behold our God. But it's going to end with, there is power in his cross. And we should declare the good news that Christ has died to bring peace. Peace with God and peace with all of creation. Would you pray together with me? Our Heavenly Father, we come now in Jesus' name and we pray for your spirit to be poured out upon us so that we would bring forth praise. And so I want to praise you now. I want to praise you for your power. Your power that's on display on the first page of the Bible, that your word, it resounds like thunder. It snaps cedars. It unleashes the floodwaters. God, we praise you. We praise you for your strength, your infinite strength, your infinite love. 
We praise you because there's no one else worthy to be praised. All other gods, lowercase g, are but created beings that are deserving, that you are deserving of their praise too. And so, God, we want to join the heavenly chorus. We want to say with the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, for, for the whole earth is filled with his glory. And so we praise you for what we see in creation, as Romans 1 says, that the invisible attributes of your power, your majesty, your beauty are on display when we climb a mountain and we see fresh snow fall onto the ground. And we're reminded every day when we look into the mirror of your image, your majesty, your beauty, God, this creation screams and shouts your glory, but furthermore, your revealed special revelation, not just generally in creation, but we praise you for Jesus Christ. We praise you for the word that was made flesh. We want to ascribe now the worship that Jesus deserves because Jesus became the storm. Jesus was swallowed up and baptized in the waters of the flood. Jesus saves by those waters. God, we praise you that the cup of your wrath was poured out fully and finally on Jesus Christ and that there is not one drop left for us so that the entire flood waters that are being held at bay will never fall down on the earth because of a promise and the entire wrath of God will never fall down on us because of the fulfillment of a promise. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for resurrection hope, for new creation, for spirit life that comes now into this broken world. And we want to praise you that Embassy Church right now, as we gather, is not just a group of people that are singing some songs, but we are a demonstration of your power, a demonstration of your voice, that we get together and we read your word and your word builds up. It transforms. It saves the lives of people. We are not mighty. Our preaching, our singing, our reading of Scripture it is nothing but your word is everything. And so we praise you for the way that we baptize people because of the power of your word. God, we are in awe. And we want to continue to be. Even more in awe than a crazy thunderstorm breaking over our heads or a mighty tornado rushing past our car. God, you. You are the thunderstorm from heaven and your thunder brings forth blessing and peace. We are so thankful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.